Welcome to the MindVine podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the MindVine podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. So welcome to the MindVine podcast. My name is Daryl Mathers, and I'm with my co-host, Chris Bovey. Chris, how are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. Were you excited about the news yesterday that you're going to be a, a teacher for the next year? Yeah. I am, yeah, I am not. Um, I understand the reason for it, but um, as I was saying earlier, there's five people in my house who are all trying to do Zoom calls around the same time. We only have a limited amount of space, and I can, I've learned that I can function in meetings on my couch, uh, in my basement, in my garage, yeah. under my garage. So, no, it's, it's been challenging. I'm worried. There's going to be a point. I have this bad nightmare there's going to be a point in my kid's career where they're going to be in the workforce and someone's going to ask them like who the heck taught you where did you go to school and they're going to like my dad and like, <laughs> yeah yeah they're going to circle the birth years of these kids and say you know were you part of the parent uh, online education program of 2020 and 2021 and yeah. it might be it might be a you know a box in the wrong column in the job interview yeah. Yeah. but yeah yeah, it's it's challenging. It's it's challenging for our staff. It continues to be as always throughout the pandemic. Want to acknowledge the hard work of our on-site and off-site staff who are adjusting to constant change. Uh, it's you know we're approaching a year uh, that we've been in this pandemic. It's a year since the first case of COVID was discovered in in Canada, and it's been constant change ever since. So thank you to everybody who's on-site doing things to you know keep our patients safe and, and off-site too it's not easy for anybody in these in this environment uh, so you know shout out to everybody at Ontario Shores yeah they're doing a great job and did we get the Pfizer sponsorship for the podcast yeah yeah, yeah I'm not sure you know it'd be it's nice not, it hasn't yeah. come through yet I think they're making a bit of they might be making some money off this so yeah, yeah. I, they, I was you know. thinking about the stock market the other day yeah yeah maybe no. So uh, the reason we're, you know, we're gathered today is uh, to not talk about, you know, COVID specifically, which is a nice break from the rest of our lives where it seems to dominate conversation is um, we're approaching uh, eating disorders awareness week uh, and you know, it is something that's close to our hearts at Ontario Shores. And we'd now like to welcome uh, our special guest uh, to the podcast. We have Joanna Anderson, who's a clinical manager on our eating disorders unit. Welcome, Joanna. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, you're welcome. And uh, it's great to and it's great to have you to to talk about eating disorders, which I know is a really misinterpreted kind of illness in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, and our program is still relatively new at Ontario Shores, but can you tell us a little bit about uh, eating disorders at Ontario Shores and the work that you do? Sure. Um, so the eating disorders unit here at Ontario Shores is a 12 bed um, residential style facility. Um, we have adolescents that are between the ages of 12 and 18. And typically the teens that are coming to us have been through the system um, in terms of, you know, more than one inpatient stay 
um, some time maybe in an outpatient program and a day program. When that hasn't been uh, successful in stabilizing the eating disorder, then um, teens would come to us at Ontario Shores for a longer stay, uh, more intensive treatment experience. What so, are some of those? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask you what some ahead. of those. I was going to ask some of what are those. What, are, what what makes it more intensive, or what makes it so unique? So uh, many of the programs in an acute care facility, so let's say, you know, um, Sick Kids or McMaster or uh, CHEO are our big, our main reference. Um, kids would go there when they're medically unstable and they would stay until they've become stabilized and they would do sort of some introductory family therapy, but really that's not a long stay, right? That's until you're medically stabilized and then you would you would leave. When day treatment hasn't been um, successful or it's not a high enough level of intensity, then you would come to us. And so we're able to keep kids for longer. They, they live here with us, right? So we have the ability to see them at every single meal, at every single snack. And we bring families onto the unit to do meal support and coaching. So when kids can eat in a hospital and then they go home and they're not able to maintain their weight or maintain, you know, the gains that they've made, we work with the family uh, really quite intensively to provide meal support and coaching. We also provide family therapy. So um, we have three social workers on the unit and each family is assigned to a social worker. So they would do uh, weekly family sessions with the, the parents and also with individual sessions with the teen. We have a multifamily therapy program that runs uh, every um, third Saturday. All of the families come together. We've had to make it virtual for now. Um, but we lead a, a group family therapy uh, session every third Saturday. And then we have a parent group that meets every third Thursday. So it really is quite intensive where we're providing a lot of coaching and a lot of feedback around how uh, to feed your child and uh, trying to empower parents to be able to do that work at home. I think when people think of hospitalization of, of any kind, uh, and there's a certain image that pops into their minds and especially with youth, I guess. So, you know, we're influenced by what we see in the media and the news and, you know, in movies uh, regarding institutions and hospitalizations. But the Eating Disorders Unit, even Ontario Shores, which is a very progressive building, a lot of natural light, we're in a beautiful piece of property next to Lake Ontario. Even in an environment like that, the Eating Disorders Unit is quite unique to the other units uh, in the hospital. So can you talk about some of the, like the physical characteristics of your unit and why it might be laid out like that? Yeah, I'm, um, I know that we're, we're very, very lucky. We feel very uh, fortunate to have the unit that we have. So we are um, on the top floor of the hospital and we have a courtyard that faces um, outside and so we're able to use that courtyard to get some outside time in the summer the kids grow um you know herbs and 
plant flowers and they have a little squirrel they feed out there. Um, we have a very large kitchen that is, as you said, it's all glass all the way around. And so you're able to sort of be in the kitchen and look out into uh, a lot of the unit. And really the design was, um, you know, the thinking behind it was to be able to normalize eating, to make the kitchen the central place of the unit. So, you know, we do all of our meals in there. We do all of our snacks in there and um, people are eating, right? They're enjoying food and they're working on getting through um, meals, challenging themselves around some of their beliefs and maybe their their kind of fixed um, beliefs around what they can eat or what they can't, but it's all kind of open so that we are able to um, see what the kids are doing to coach them through it, to work with families. And then on the kind of backside of the unit, we've got an open nursing station. So um, it's quite accessible. So when the nurses or any of the staff are back there, the teams are able to interact with us. And that's really so that we can, you know, stay quite attuned to what's going on for them because, um, you know, challenging yourself on your beliefs or the things that are keeping you really stuck is hard. It's quite um, anxiety provoking. And so when the kids are, are struggling or they need support, we're able to kind of be right there and be attuned to what's happening for them. We also have a classroom on the unit, which is probably different than a lot of um, the other units. And um, our teacher comes every day and we have a child and youth worker that's in the classroom with, with the teens so that they can, um, you know, continue to work on their schoolwork. And we want them to stay engaged in their lives, right? Because that's what an eating disorder does. It takes you out of your life. And we want the kids to be able to have something to return to, to, to build a life worth living that doesn't include an eating disorder. And so school and community and friends are, are a big part of their recovery. And I'm just going to follow up on that, Chris, just before you jump in. Sure. Just having been on the unit, I think I described to you earlier that it, it kind of feels like a drop-in center at times. Like you have kids, that are, it's very casual. You have kids on computers, you have kids on the couches, you have kids in the classroom. And uh, one of the things that people may not realize is that our the, our clients, our patients in the eating source unit come from all over the province. And eating disorder, like any other illness, is um, very isolating. You know, the mental illness is very isolating, I would imagine. What is it like when you get these kids from all over the place, Ontario, and have them in the same you know, living quarters? Like, is there an instant bond because of their struggles? Or like, what's that dynamic like? It's hard to say um, sort of that it's, one way all the time. I think different groups of kids will interact differently. Right now, we have a group that are all quite musical, um, that, you know, we've got someone who's very talented in playing piano, one, one patient that's really quite talented um, with her, her voice, it's her instrument. And so um, at, over the holidays, they uh, did a little concert for the staff and they organized it all. And so you know, you see different times where you've got different cohorts of kids and they'll interact differently. I think that, yes, they certainly do share a commonality in that, 
the eating disorder has taken them out of their lives um, and that they've been, um, you know, often hospitalized. They've, they're not going to their regular school. They're not seeing their friends. And so, yeah, there is um, a bond there in terms of being able to understand each other and understand how difficult that this has been for many of them. And I think that there, there is a shared understanding and um, sense of community. As staff, we certainly try to foster that um, and have the kids support each other in terms of recovery. So you, you mentioned, Daryl kind of covered where I was going to go on the provincial side of things, but you talked a little bit about the, you know, the work that you do with the parents. So I was just curious, you know, again, kids are coming from, from all over the province. As a, as a parent, right, it's got to be really challenging to, to be away from, from your child, and, and especially in a pandemic in a virtual world and, and maybe having less access in, in person. But can you describe a little bit more detail um, how we work with parents during this this journey of recovery um, and, and their role and how we, you know, what you're hearing about sort of information and their needs as they go through this process. Sure, yeah. So when when parents um, and the referral comes to us, we set up a, a meeting. We were using OTN um, and, and virtual uh, communications before the pandemic because, you know, we have people from, as you said, all over the province. So um, we would set up a meeting with the parents and uh, with the patient or the child and sometimes uh, separate depending on if, if people wanted to ask different questions or how, how the family felt that that was going to work for them. Um, and so we, you know, we really tried to work with families before they come to understand what the program is, what the expectations are, what their kind of day will look like, how to get them set up with school, all of that. And then before the pandemic, we were, um, able to have parents come onto the unit quite frequently. And it, that's actually an expectation of our program if you're local and you're able to, to do that so that we could work with you around meal support and have you with your child. And so um, in the beginning, we supply all of the food for our program and, and have you know the teens start to normalize their eating. But as people are uh, the patients are working through the program, we would have parents start to bring food and bring the kinds of things that they would eat at home so that we could have the kids get reintegrated into that kind of eating. So there's a lot of intensive coaching around meal support. Now what we've done is, um, you know, we made um, MFT, multifamily therapy virtual. And, you know, in the beginning, as we were all learning how to use Zoom, um, it, we had some technical glitches, but really we have figured it out. So we um, set up our computers in the classroom with all the kids there and the staff, the parents will join. And then we're able to do breakout groups and um, separate the parents into one group, the siblings into one group, and then the, the teens into one group. And then we bring everyone back together. So We've really had, um, you know, some success at very quickly 
redesigning that program and making it virtual. And then, you know, parents, we, even with the pandemic, because they're children, we have been able to still have visitors onto the unit. Um, so I think all in all, the pandemic certainly has been a challenge for us and for everyone, but I, I think that we've been able to manage it and to still work with families, um, you know, to support recovery and to support the kids going back into the community and that reintegration. In one part of our program that was very unique um, before the pandemic was that we would take kids, we have a recreation therapist on the unit. And so we would go into the community and eat in the community, right? We would take the kids to I don't know, wherever they're going to eat with their friends that, you know, they're going to go and have lunch or they're going to go and meet their friends. So we would take them to those kinds of places and help them practice ordering and, and getting the meal and working through it and figuring out what, you know, would be appropriate for them consistent with their meal plan. We're not able to do that right now, but we've continued to, you know, order food or, or have parents bring so that we can like still do some of that practice because that's the stuff that's really tough when you leave hospital right um to go back to the outside world and, and be integrated there so it's been a challenge but I think you've done okay when when you talk about going you know like a, that transition outside to the outside world and and, you know, practicing ordering and stuff. It just made me think like the language that we choose to use when we're in those types of restaurants um, as adults, right? And when we're around our kids, regardless of their age, how many times we look at the menu and wonder or how many calories that is, or, you know, try to justify what we're ordering based on what we've eaten the previously in, in the day and, and just the, just, the, you know, kind of the outspoken thoughts that we have when we're in those situations and how they can, you know, do you feel like those can potentially impact, you know, a young person who's, you know, struggling with this type of illness? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the thing about eating disorders is we, there are certain characteristics or traits of your personality that would make you more vulnerable to an eating disorder. It's not one thing. It's certainly multifactorial, but there are traits and tendencies. And that tends to be, you know, um, perfectionism and uh, high drive for, you know, things to be a certain way, to, uh, anxiety, um, sort of a rigidity, right, to, to your thinking. And so if you're about to order a meal and your parent says that that's junk food or junk food, that that's, you know, bad, we shouldn't eat that. For someone who has very black and white concrete thinking, it's very, very difficult to understand um, that, that maybe that's food that we have sometimes uh, and, and that it's okay right? All foods have their place and their time. So, you know, as parents, one thing that, you know, not that you're asking for my advice on this, but, but really one thing that we can do is not talk about foods in those ways and in a good or bad way. And in black and white terms, we have foods that we use for fuel and we have more often. And then there's fun foods that we have maybe less often, but 
putting it into sort of good or bad, all or nothing terms is very, very, um, it can be damaging if you've got a child who's going to take that and, um, and not be able to apply flexibility or adaptability um, or context to it. One of the things working on Ontario Shores that um, that we learned pretty quickly on is when it comes to stigma or resources, it's not one, you know, one size. People use the term mental health. It's this general term and you see Bell Let's Talk and we're, we're coming out to Bell Let's Talk. It's very general. But when you look at for example, our forensic population or the eating disorders unit, you see that stigma at a whole different level for this population. And I'm wondering if take some time just to talk about what are some of the myths or things that you'd want the public around eating disorders that they may have misconceptions about? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, you know, you started off by saying this is a misunderstood illness. I would agree with that. I think that most people think that we have one idea of what an eating disorder is. It tends to be you know, anorexia, where people are emaciated and very underweight. And so there's this this assumption that if you don't fit that profile, that you don't, you know, have an eating disorder. But if you, you know, went, walked onto our unit, you wouldn't be able to tell a lot of our patients from, you know, any other kid um, at a high school or out out in the community. Um, The body responds in different ways to eating disorders. And so it's not something that you can ever tell with your eyes. Um, I think the other thing is that we tend to focus on the physical manifestations of eating disorders. Um, You know, people's weight, their shape, uh, you know, um, the medical complications. And our patients tell us consistently that, you know, that is only one part of, of the illness and that um, it's actually quite alienating for them to, to have that always be the focus, that the behavior is psychologically meaningful, the, the distress that is accompanying the, the idea of eating and and not eating is significant. And what I mean by that is, you know, people who who have an eating disorder, they tend to associate what's happening on the outside of their body with who they are as a person, their essence, their character. They, um, They can't separate the two. And so when we're focused on the outside and asking them to eat or, you know, eat differently than they, than they have been. Um, They are, they have very strong beliefs around what that means for them as a person and who they are. And I think that that we don't focus enough on the internal response and the distress um, for, for, for patients. So um, that's one thing that I would really like people to understand is you cannot tell from the outside who has an eating disorder and you really, um, it takes a little, some time and engagement to really understand what's going on for folks. Sure. 
Just and just one quick follow up on that. Do you think there's people believe that eating disorders are a product of of the culture as opposed to that? Well, obviously, media and culture can exacerbate the symptoms and, and how people respond. But do they sort of, you know, by thinking it's it's cultural, sort of dismiss it as an illness? Do you feel like as a society we we kind of have that framing? I mean, I think if you look back throughout history, we've had eating disorders, right? You know, Freud was describing patients with eating disorders. So this has been with us for a long time. I think um, as clinicians and professionals, we've gone through different phases of our understanding of what uh, contributes to an eating disorder. Um, I mean, we do live in a culture that prioritizes and and rewards thinness. Um, we can't deny that. I think that it it's multifactorial. You know, you can't you can't pin it on culture or the media or um, you know the way that we kind of think about it um, in in popular culture, right? Like I'm thinking about you know, the Kardashians and all of that. Like, you can't blame it on all of that. We've had eating disorders for a long time. I think that the way we usually understand it is genetics kind of um, predisposes certain people to being vulnerable, to more vulnerable to the environment. And when you've got those two things together, um, you know, it can be a bit of a perfect storm. So, and, and, you know, when you talk to our patients, some of them will tell you that they were bullied in school or, you know, some stuff was going on in their family. Maybe they had a significant loss. Um, you know, sometimes uh, a, a comment can be uh, misinterpreted or, you know, we've had kids who've lost weight because of, things not related to body image and then all of a sudden people are telling them that they look great right and they didn't realize that that anyone was even paying attention to their body and now uh that's a focus so there's many many reasons why and the the good thing about this is that the answer is the same right we have to heal our relationship with food and we sort of normalize eating and I think attend to the emotional distress and the emotional dysregulation that that accompanies the behavior which is the eating I know you don't want to blame the the Kardashians even though I think I would like to um but but, you know (laughs) (laughs) no but like they're they're just a a symptom of a bigger problem uh, that you know exists in certainly in social media so, but I wonder, you're dealing with teenagers, right? And so how do you mix, you know, positive, you know, self thoughts, um, kind of the healing that you describe that goes on, you know, when you're being treated with an eating disorder, the re-entry into the community, and then you're managing social media and Instagram, which would be, a, I would imagine, a, a you know, very popular among our, our patients, and important for them to learn how to manage that tool if it's going to 
negatively impact their their self-worth so like are, are those conversations that take place or how does how does that get managed um when somebody's being treated and prepared to you know for ultimately being discharged into the community it's interesting that you asked me about this because one of our patients just did a project because i as i said we have a teacher on our unit and so um they did a big project on social media and its influence and so you know the kids were talking about um the positive aspects that um they they cited creativity and art and um you know being able to connect with other people around we have a lot of really talented kids on the unit and so when they're making art or music they're putting it out there into the world you know social media gives them a way to communicate and to connect they also talked about the me too movement right where um you know people were able to talk about issues and recovery and form a community in a positive way um and then there's the flip side of it right i asked them when we were talking about this, if they felt that social media had contributed to their eating disorder and every one of them said yes, in some way it did. Um, And so I think, yes, what we try to do is talk to them about anything can be used for good or, you know, um, bad purposes and, and educating them around the effects of being on sites that promote unhealthy behaviors and glorify eating disorders. Um, and, and, you know, try to help them understand that social media is a tool and then it, it really is around how you use it and how you engage and, and the frame of mind that you're in when you're, when you're looking at it. Just for add on to that point, do you think, we could do a better job in literacy and at a young age and education about how to use media, how to present the authentic you, but also to understand eating disorders at a young age, you know, uh, should that be in schools more? Should we be doing more work there? Um, you cut out for a sec what is around um, eating disorders and literacy at a younger yeah, age. Just, yeah. Social uh, and even social media teaching them. What you're seeing there is not necessarily the authentic person that they're presenting. You don't have to aspire to a fake standard, but working on those those self-esteem images, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. and and even understanding what eating disorders, uh, do you think we need to do more in the education system? I think so. Um, I think when, you know, when social media came around, us as parents, we didn't have a sense of the dark side of it or, you know, um, how damaging some of it could be. And I think now parents are starting to understand that, you know, limiting what their, their children are viewing and accessing is a really important control to put on. Um, I I think that there has been a movement within schools generally to educate kids, certainly around safety and um, the impact of what they're seeing. I'm, I'm cert- certain that we could do a better job. Um, and in terms of eating disorders, I think, you know, while yes, we can do more to educate kids, I don't think you want to educate kids specifically about eating disorders because um, 
the literature has shown that talking to young people around eating disorders doesn't always have the effect that you want it to. Um, but I think that we can certainly do a lot of prevention work and that starts with families. That starts with caregivers and parents to help them understand, um, you know, the food is the manifestation and we, we focus a lot on the food, what's healthy, what's not, what's got sugar in it, what's not. Really what we want to focus on is helping your kids to um, be attuned to their their hunger cues, right? Eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, that kind of um, listening to your own body around food. We don't teach people that. We also don't teach kids around emotional literacy, right? How to sit with your feelings when your feelings are hurt, when you're sad, when you're anxious, when you're scared and you don't know why, what do we do with that, right? Like we don't really teach kids that part. And so when you have all of those feelings and the literature shows us that people with eating disorders, we call them hyper feelers. They have big feelings and they feel things deeply. And so when you've got all these feelings, you don't know what to do with them. And then you can control your food, your intake, right? And that makes you feel like you've got some control. That can be a really, um, you know, damaging and dangerous combination for children. So I think media literacy for sure, but I think we need emotional literacy as well um, and to help parents know how to talk to their kids about some of those things. And that's one of the things that we do on, on our unit. We use the therapy called EFFT, uh, Emotion-Focused Family Therapy. And it really does teach parents to be able to validate, listen, attune, deal with those big feelings because you know if your kid is a hyper feeler or has high expressed emotion that can be really challenging to cope with if you if you're not equipped yourself so I think there's lots of room for us to improve and and educate you know parents our patients community ourselves <laughs> yeah. well it, I mentioned off the top it's eating disorders awareness a week and I think about all the different groups in uh, in a kind of Ontario Shores sphere that are stigmatized, right? Uh, I would say eating disorders is certainly among them, but certainly males who uh, have an eating disorder would be uh, stigmatized even further. And you talk a little bit about, you know, because I think it's universally known as a girl's disease, you know, any type of eating disorders, but that's not true. And it's not what we see necessarily on in our treatment program. Mm -hmm. The stigma really does contribute to poor outcomes for males and eating disorders because what we see is that when males present, um, when they come to attention by care providers, they've um, been sick for longer and they, um, you know, their, their weights and, and their, their health outcomes are poorer. So, um, in the eating disorder community, we have done a lot of work to uh, educate and to reach out to males and to try to erase that that idea that this is a, a, a female illness. Um, it's difficult, right, to, to, to break that down and it, it has to happen over time and, and through 
you know, large scale education campaigns. Um, NEDEC is the National Eating Disorder Information Center. Um, they have done a lot of work to uh, bring attention to males and eating disorders and to really try to, um, you know, educate care providers to look out for boys, right? And to um, notice the signs and symptoms and early intervention is one of the strongest tools that we have in our toolbox to be able to, um, you know, help, help kids get the, the attention that they need sooner. So um, I'm glad that you brought it up because we've had a number of boys on our unit at Ontario Shores and um, it's difficult. It's difficult for them. So you talked just quickly on early intervention. So as parents, what, what kind of things should they be looking out for? And any tips just kind of, if I see my child, maybe I need to do a little bit more focused thinking and, and understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we always tell parents, you know your child better than anyone else, right? You know the normal patterns. Um, you know the way that your child has eaten throughout their life. And so if you're starting to see changes, I would pay attention to that. I mean, often we see, you know, kids aren't going to school right now, but lunch bags coming home, you know, with half eaten lunches or not at all, or, you know, teachers will often notice, right? The kids aren't um, having their, their snacks or their lunches at school in the same way. I think um, if, you're noticing heightened anxiety in your child around food or the way that they look, um, that would be something to pay attention to as well. And, you know, the kids who really have those kind of, like I said, we call them hyper feelers, those big, big feelings or um, anxiety, that is a predisposing factor, right? And so when anxiety isn't treated, people find ways to cope with their anxiety, right? Whether it's food, substances, you know. Um, So I think when you're, if you have a child that you can tell is very, very anxious or is really struggling, getting some help early for that to help them cope with and manage those emotions is very important. And then certainly if you're, you know, seeing that your child's not, growing or progressing or you know your physician can help you kind of look at those targets and see where where your kids should be one thing i wondered about as it pertains to eating disorders is stories so we have a lot of uh, advocates developing in the mental health area who are sharing their story in a lot of ways uh, in a lot of instances not necessarily that long into their recovery, that uh, part of their recovery is actually sharing their experience. But with eating disorders, it seems at least, you know, from what you know, we gather on in the media, that people who have been through an eating disorder in their youth don't tend to disclose publicly or feel comfortable sharing until they're much older and maybe established. And I wonder if you feel like, you know, would it be more impactful to young people to have uh, um, some voices out there that are closer to their age or like are do do stories recover of recovery users do they have the kind of impact that we normally associate with mental health stories 
It's a good question because we often have, you know, patients asking us for someone who's recovered to come and talk to them or, you know, families really, really appreciate having someone who's, who's recovered coming back to share the story. So I do think it's deeply impactful and it also instills hope, right? And hope that things can be different is such an important part of anyone's mental health, you know, journey. Um, I think that when you've had an eating disorder, it's, you know, if you, let's say you, um, have a a struggle with alcohol or with, with, um, substances and you stop using and you enter the recovery community, right? That is something that you can um, you can be abstinent from, or you can, you can make that uh, a choice, right? A lifestyle choice that, um, to, to not use those substances or to be part of a recovery community. Eating disorders tends to be a different trajectory where you have to heal your relationship with food. And we eat three times a day, usually three meals and snacks during the day, right? And food is such a big part of our lives and our culture. We celebrate with it, we mourn with it, right? And so it's a longer journey. um, And it's something that you have to manage on a day-to-day basis. And so I think it, it doesn't tend to be something where people are like, okay, I'm done now. I'm recovered. I'm fully good. Great. Tick the box. Does that make sense? Like, I think it tends to be a a work that is ongoing and that you're working through. Does that mean that you can't um, be part of a recovery community and put your story out there? No, it doesn't. But I do think that there's still a lot of stigma. And I think a lot of people feel that because they're working towards um, recovery or they're, they're managing on an ongoing way that it tends to be, um, different, but having, and this is all very recent, right? I think that, um, even people wanting to get their story out there at all is more recent, um, in eating disorders. I think it was heavily, heavily stigmatized for a long time. It still is not to the degree that it previous, but we're still not there yet. Um, where people feel that they can be open and talk about it in a way where they're still managing it and still in the process of recovery. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, this is the start too for us talking about eating disorders at Ontario Shores because we. We haven't done that uh, for a lot of reasons uh, in the short existence of our eating source program. We haven't shared a lot of stories. We haven't uh, talked a lot about it. So hopefully this is the start of that. And thank you for taking the time to, to join us today. It was really enlightening in a lot of ways. And I think obviously timely with the eating disorders awareness week and, and people, especially young parents of young, uh, young people uh, might find it very helpful just some of the points you made. So thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thank you. I hope we can continue to to talk and um, happy to answer any questions that, you know, come come out of the podcast or or that people have. Great. 
Thank you. Appreciate it.